Devoncast from Radio X. Hello and welcome to Devoncast, the weekly podcast looking at local and regional issues in Devon, the politics, the people and how decisions here affect how we live, work and enjoy our county. I'm Ollie Heptonstall. And I'm Guy Henderson. On the way this week, we hear how a new railway station is set to give the southern side of Exeter a bit of a boost and how Torbay Council has said sorry to people who spent hundreds of pounds on tickets for that festival that never happened. Lessons have been learned, they say. And later on, we'll also find out how it could be the end of the road for Devon's mobile library service and three watersite buildings owned by the council down in Torbay. Devoncast. From Radio X. But first this week... We met five, yes, five police and crime commissioners from all over the south of England this week. They were all at Middlemore to talk about Operation Scorpion, a multi-force crackdown on cannabis factories, which in Devon and Cornwall alone has seen them seize nearly 1,200 plants with a street value of more than £675,000. They raided a former Torquay nightclub, which lots of listeners will have once known as Clare's, then Bohemia, now Derelict, and carted off more than 400 plants, which could have been worth up to £350,000. And it's not just about the drugs. There is modern slavery and people trafficking going on in some of these factories. Vulnerable people are being held against their will and forced to work around the clock to produce this illicit crop. We've been talking to Devon and Cornwall Police and Crime Commissioner Alison Hernandez about Operation Scorpion, how to spot the telltale signs of a cannabis factory, and how local people making better choices could help put a stop to the misery. Well, it's the first time five police forces and five police and crime commissioners have come together to really tackle our drugs challenge in the southwest. Now, it's about those daily occurrences of drug dealing, those daily occurrences of drug abuse that you see in communities that we want to tackle. Um, you know, there's already regional and national projects dealing with the big wigs. We want to deal with those that are really visible in our communities. Yeah. And obviously there's, there's been quite a high profile operation in Torquay quite recently, which has been involved, part of Operation Scorpion. It has. And, you know, it's the old nightclub I used to go to when it was formerly known as Claire's. Um, and it, it was fascinating to go in and see that amount of cannabis growth in a building, in a busy street, that people are in buildings all around it working in restaurants and bars and that they hadn't seen and witnessed the types of equipment that would have had to have been taken into that building to grow the amount they'd grown. It's worth £250,000. Because if, if people haven't seen the pictures, the, the whole interior of that building was gutted and filled with plants and growing equipment. Anybody who'd been in there as Claire's or Bohemia would not recognise the place. No, no. And it, obviously it was extremely dark as well. Mm. And they boarded up a lot of the internal doors. With, they'd used rubbish to actually just stop people being able to get in through some of the doors. In fact, some of the grow areas had been boarded up and you had to climb into little holes to get yeah. into the room so that you couldn't find it quite so easily. So, but it also had a, a, you know, a couple of beds in there, a fridge, a sink... Uh, a mini kitchen for the two people who were there actually trying to um, deal with the growth and make it cultivate it for the community. And how much does modern slavery play into this? Because I know the two things are going side by side in Operation Scorpion. There is a modern slavery um, aspect to this as well, isn't there? there? There is. And I think in the last probably decade, policing has gotten a lot more aware of the difference between and the overlap between victims and offenders. Um, and that is particularly in the modern slavery space. So while these individuals will have been, you know, uh, growing and supplying and sorting all these things, some of them are being done under severe threat, uh, pressure, 
um, and all sorts of blackmail. Um, I can't say that about this case, but in particular, there are links to modern slavery in relation to most drug dealing. Yeah. And we were talking just now about how this had happened in a busy, talky street with a queue of cars at the traffic lights there 24-7 pretty much. And nobody noticed. What, what are the signs to look for? Because you need people to be vigilant and you yeah. need people to report it, don't you? Well, do you know what? A few months before, I did notice somebody who looked like two workmen trying to open the electricity box in the street. And I did report it into the police at the time. Because what they actually do, they will have diverted from a mainline bit of electricity. So I think one of the things we should be looking out for in communities is what utility roadworks is going on that's linked to any electricity cabinets, that's linked yeah. to water. That, that seems unusual. Where are they sending it? Where are they taking it to? Where's the piping going? Um, uh, just being slightly more aware rather than annoyed there's a bit of roadworks in there because it does look official. They must be using official routes to get some of these jobs done. These aren't just, you know, getting a long wire and plugging it in. They're having to dig up roads and things like that. So I think that eyes open on what's going on in the utility world would be, I think, really, really welcome. Um, the other thing I, I, I think that's quite fascinating is, um, you know, to have so many, there's such a busy area that no one smelt it, no one could see it, yeah. no one yeah. witnessed it. So they are clearly very clever at the way they move some of the equipment around and how they create these systems. Um, so I, I suppose the thing for me is, um, what was interesting is um, looking in the fridge of people who are, who are trying to do the cultivation of these things. They clearly um, have specific food tastes. And it was, it was absolutely filled with like yogurt and bread uh, and certain things that were in there from um, the local shop. Um, and it was just fascinating. So it's almost like, you know, what are people buying? Are yeah. they buying bulk yeah. stuff in yeah. some of these food shops to supply to people? Um, and the interesting thing as well would be the actual pots that all of these plants are in. You know, I want yeah. gardeners, gardening uh, centres. I want people who are selling all of these fancy plant pots that you can use everyone tells me they're using to grow potatoes and things like that and that you can buy you know who's buying those in bulk at the moment um is it your usual suspects or is there some new people who are trying to buy it so again they probably get all of this off the websites and nobody knows where it's going um so it's all quite easy to do but i think there's some real some of the technicalities um around some of these cannabis farms that that should be more noticeable yeah. than we would normally realize and there's a there's a real misery and exploitation at the bottom end of this chain as well, isn't there? You know, the, the, the people, the people who are at the front end of this are are not living the high life, are they? They're not. And what's interesting, though, those who decide to take cannabis seem to think they are. And this is what I'm trying to get across: is you know they think it's a bit of a laugh. Uh, spent lots of recreational use, or as we would call it, uh, illegal gateway drug, rather than a recreational drug, because it makes it sound like it's fun and you can do it and it's legal. Well, it's not. Um, and there's there's an awful lot of suffering going into that, having that giggle that you might have if you take cannabis. And we just need people to make, make a bit more of an ethical decision about what they're doing in their lives, because I don't think they even think about it. And I know particularly, and I'm going to make a plea to university students. I'm a former university student myself. I've spoken to recent university students. It's still rife in young people's lives. They think it's fun. They think it's time to take risks and they think they're going to have a laugh. And I think fundamentally, they need to start making those ethical decisions that they think they're making about the environment, about people. Quite an extraordinary story by the sounds of things, Guy. And it forms part of a national crackdown as well. 
It does. I mean, all these uh, police forces up and down the south of England have been working together on this. There's an awful lot of resources gone into it, but it's a big, big problem. Uh, there are hundreds of these uh, cannabis factories springing up in farm buildings, disused buildings all over the place. And uh, as the uh, the commissioner has, uh, has been saying, they should be easy to spot. They should be easy to smell, but people are getting away with it. They're very clever about the way that they divert electricity, the way they ventilate these places. But it's it's a big problem, and this has turned the spotlight right on it. If we had snow, it might be a bit easier to detect them, mightn't it? Because uh, it always melts on uh, when the cannabis is growing, it seems. But uh, Alison Hernandez was pretty shocked about how they managed to hide these drugs in, in some of these places, wasn't she? She was. Actually, there was one case where uh, where it was a drone that found them because it was flying above all these rooftops uh, in the middle of winter. And as you say, there was one rooftop that was uh, completely clear of frost and snow. But uh, it's an interesting thing that, that the way Alison Hernandez is talking about people making better choices – when people do buy cannabis, people buy cannabis for their weekend, for what she calls the giggle. And she's interested in trying to make people make better choices the way they do with food. People will buy a certain brand of tuna fish because it's caught on a line and it's kinder to the dolphins. They'll buy a certain brand of peanut butter because it hasn't got any palm oil in it and it's kinder to the orangutans. But they don't think about when they're buying their recreational but still illegal drugs they're not thinking of the human cost of the human trafficking of the modern slavery of the misery and if people just thought about that maybe uh, maybe that would be one answer so the other big question ollie and it's it's a massive question for brains much bigger than ours but let's put it out there and it might be interesting if we got some feedback from listeners is would the situation change if cannabis was legal as it is in parts of uh, canada parts of the usa uh, Amsterdam, places like that, it would destroy the need for these factories, these underground factories in one fell swoop. But would they then just simply move on to manufacturing something else? Or, you know, would it would it help to put an end to the trafficking and the slavery? It's an interesting thought. And, you know, there are all kinds of arguments on both sides. We'll have listeners who will throw their hands up in yeah. horror and say that you cannot legalize cannabis. And you'll have listeners that say, well, yeah, it might just work. I'd be interested to know what people think. Yeah, very much so. It's an interesting topic, isn't it? And like you mentioned, you know, if it wasn't illegal, would the manufacturers and the the drug organizations just move on to something else, simply as you put it? But I don't think we are going to see it legalised anytime soon. I don't think, certainly the Conservatives are not keen on that, are they? I don't think Labour, that fits in with their manifesto and what they're no. promoting. They're quite keen on law and order, aren't they, ahead of the uh, next election? So it might be something for, I don't know, decade, a couple of decades time. Decade, indeed. I'm not sure it would be much of a vote winner at the moment, no. but it's it, it, people mention it now and then as a possible way to end the, uh, you know, the violence and the intimidation and all, you know, everything that goes with uh, with the drugs trade. It's all uh, people as again, as the commissioner says, it, you know, people think it's a giggle, but it isn't. You know, people are getting county lines. People are getting trafficked. There's a lot of misery behind the scenes. Yeah, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on this email address. News at radiox.co.uk. Now, seven years after it should have welcomed passengers, Marsh Barton's long-awaited new £16 million train station was formally opened by the Transport Secretary this week. Regular services are now calling at the station, which serves the city's largest trading estate, and a new cycle and pedestrian bridge has also been built. I've cycled through it and it is very good indeed. Trains were initially due to call at Marsh Barton at the end of 2016, 
but a number of setbacks led to considerable delays. But now it's open and the Transport Secretary Mark Harper says it will provide an economic boost to Exeter and the wider southwest region. Here's what Devon's lead councillor for transport, Andrea Davis, had to say at the opening. And I will just say it was a very windy Tuesday morning. Absolutely delighted. Um, you know, make a really big difference to Marsh Barton and really the whole of Exeter. Um, what we're trying to do is reduce emissions, encourage people to use our integrated transport system. And we already know the residents of Devon are really keen on using rail. So this is a whole new opportunity. Um, well, there's nothing not to like. And it comes off the back of the success of the Oakhampton station. Did that dispel any doubts about whether this would be successful, well, knowing how well that's done? Well, this was already in operation. This has been going on yeah. for some time. Um, and obviously, Oakhampton was alongside it. Um, I think we've all been surprised about the numbers going from Oakhampton to and from. And indeed, every time I get on, I'm always amazed how busy those trains are. But that's a phenomenal success, which we're hoping to build on. And you've mentioned there might be other projects in the pipeline as well. So we already know that we will be delivering another station at Oakhampton and we have a bid in to extend the line from Plymouth to, to Tavistock. So fingers crossed we get that money as well and then we'll be doing more rail stuff. Are you hoping people decide not to drive into Marsh Barton, leave their cars at home? avoid all the congestion you see at rush hour times? Well, absolutely. Why would you drive to Marsh Barton when you have a choice? Because the congestion is horrendous any time of the day, as far as I can tell. So, yes, we are hoping that people use this as their preferred way to get to Marsh Barton, to the county council offices and to the hospital. I also asked Andrea Davis what the opening of new stations in Devon says about the beaching cuts in the 60s when hundreds of stations were closed. Really, my opinion about that is that we weren't there at the time, or I was maybe, and but, you know, very, very, very young. Hmm. So we don't know what pressures were going on then. Yeah. We don't know what the rail, rail industry was like. I can't say because I wasn't around. So it's very difficult to start commenting on what was happening in history. Now, what we do know is more and more people were buying cars and that the rail system maybe wasn't as efficient and as pleasant as it is now. But what we've got in Devon, more importantly now and today, because I'm actually about the future, is that we've got you know, more than 100% pre-COVID numbers on our railway. We don't get that anywhere else in the country. No, that's true, yeah. So we know that Devon residents want to get on trains. Right, so if you're thinking of heading to Marsh Barton on the train, it's served by hourly Great Western Railway services between Paynton and Exmouth with half-hourly services at peak times. I think you'll be using that to get here at Radio X, Guy. I will, yeah. I'm, I'm using the train to get up from Paynton at the moment and uh, as it stands at the moment, I get to St Thomas and it, this weather is great. It's a very nice walk along the uh, the side of the canal from St Thomas out to the Radio X HQ, but uh, come the winter, I'll be pretty glad to have Marsh Barton a little bit closer. Uh, not quite such a long walk in the wind and the rain. And it'll provide a, a big boost, they're saying, for not only Exeter, but down towards Teambridge as well, towards Paynton. I think it will. I, I did hear an interview with somebody uh, this week that chap was saying that he goes to Tynmouth a lot and he's going to use Marsh Barton to get himself to Tynmouth for a day out. Um, and you, you can see a lot of people using it. Interesting you were talking about beaching there because um, I, I had a completely different job. I was talking to uh, the railway historian Tim Dunn 
the other day. He's the chap who makes that program about London's hidden underground oh, stations yeah. and that really interesting program. And he was saying um, that the beaching cuts, you can look at it one way that a lot of these branch lines closed and stations closed. But the other way to look at it is that uh, is that they severed the limbs to save the body. You know, they, they had to get rid of some of these branch lines in order to save the rest of the network. And I'd never really thought about it that way. But it is really good to see these stations opening again. Yeah, and Andrea Davis was, was basically trying to say that, you know, in hindsight, obviously they wouldn't have closed them back in the 60s. But with the introduction of the private car into loads of households, mm. trains I don't think were as popular back then. But now they're making a comeback. It's clearly a lot more eco-friendly. And it gets congestion off the roads. We see how bad it is through Marsh Barton. Hopefully that will uh, be reduced. Yeah. Anything that gets people off the roads at the moment has got to be a good thing. And I, I, while I've been using the train service for reasons that are far too boring to go into right at the moment, but I've been really impressed for the last few months I've been using the trains and uh, and it's it's a good service and it's uh, it works. You've jinxed yourself now, haven't you? <laughs> I did get stranded at Dawlish Warren one night, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> Devon Cast from Radio X. Now, if you were with us last week, and if not, why not? You will have heard us talking about the collapse of the Torbay Food and Music Festival, which should have happened in May. UB40 were supposed to play and scouting for girls and all sorts of others, but the company behind it went bust, having never put on anything like it before. Now the council has said sorry and promised that it won't happen again. We talked about this quite a lot last week, Guy, but there's been a development with that council meeting. There has, yeah. The festival was the topic of quite a lively discussion at a meeting of uh, Torbay's Overview and Scrutiny Board on Wednesday evening. It's it's not immediately an exciting-sounding meeting, but it was pretty lively. The council, had emerges, had been so keen for the festival to go ahead that it paid Case Live, uh, the company supposed to be putting on the festival, a £20,000 advance to kick things off. But, of course, it all went wrong the company went bust and some people who had bought tickets were left hundreds of pounds out of pocket. Uh, now the council has come out with a full apology and a promise that lessons will be learned. Uh, and it says it needs to rebuild trust with the people who bought tickets. Liberal Democrat councillor Cordelia Law said uh, at the meeting that people who'd spent their money on tickets because, uh, because they trusted the council. And now it felt as if the council was complicit in them losing a lot of money. Still, nobody has said how many tickets have been sold, but the implication from the meeting was that sales were not going all that well. It was Deputy Council Leader Chris Lewis who offered the big apology and said the council had acted in good faith, thinking that they were promoting something that was going to be a major event for the benefit of the Bay. But he admitted that due diligence on the promoters did not take place to the extent that it should have. And Darren Cowell, who's an independent councillor, uh, made an interesting point that uh, too many rules and regulations could stifle other events and put people off organising festivals and such like. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, he said, guaranteeing himself a place in my story, because I love that phrase. And if anybody <laughs> ever comes out with that, they always get in. But on the subject of the £20,000 advance, the council's deputy director of finance, uh, a gentleman called Ian Rousewell, uh, said that officers had followed the correct procedures at the time but those procedures needed to be significantly improved. So will there be another Torbay Festival of Music and Food? I think there probably will be, although you can bet your Marsh Barton season ticket that it'll have a different name. It'll be slightly less ambitious, I imagine. It might have a slightly lower profile, uh, but Torbay, as we said last week, needs these events, um, but this time with a lot more checks, balances and safeguards in place. I, I think it'll be back, Ollie. Oh, really? OK. I think I thought they I would have swerved well clear of it, but... Um... 
I suppose they do need think, it, don't they, for the economy? Yeah, it, I mean, obviously it won't be the same promoters, but something around the same weekend, there'll be something, there'll be something a little bit more modest, a little bit more maybe locally inspired, if you like, um, you know, people. The council has its own events team, which puts on some really good stuff. And they uh, they got some uh, some kudos last night during the uh, the course of the meeting because the council's own events team does does good things. Maybe it's something, a smaller festival, that the council's own events team does. Perhaps. We'll have to see what happens. But, yeah, clearly an embarrassing episode down there in Torbay this week. Devoncast from Radio X. Right then, so before we leave you this week, let's take a look at a couple of stories that are on the radar for next week. It could be the final chapter for Devon's mobile library service, with councillors being recommended to close it down. Users of the service were consulted about its future earlier this year with numbers down and three vehicles coming to the end of their serviceable lives. It would cost more than half a million pounds to replace them. I've seen a figure of about £800,000 in a worst case scenario and the number of books borrowed from the mobile libraries is down 68% in the last decade. It's led the council to say the service is no longer sustainable but a report that will be presented to the council's cabinet next Wednesday says that for some of the most vulnerable mobile libraries give them their only chance to socialise. The council's therefore planning a £25,000 fund to develop alternatives for current users if the service is indeed closed down next week. It would be sad, Guy, but, you know, if, if you're not getting the people using the service and it is costing a lot, a lot of money to replace those vehicles, then it, it leaves the council in a difficult position. It does. I agree with you. But libraries are so important. My mum used to use the mobile library and she used to look forward to that coming around. And it's not just books. I mean, the, the mobile libraries, they have they serve a purpose with getting information out there, letting people know about events and the social aspect as well is really, really important. So it's one of those services that it doesn't just boil down to uh, to facts and figures. It doesn't just boil down to numbers. There's, there's a social benefit there that well, yeah. uh, I hope the council will take on board. Indeed, yeah, and there's already attracted a bit of a backlash. Mark Wooding, who's the Liberal Democrat prospective parliamentary candidate for Central Devon at the next election, has tweeted me to say, our country is becoming one where we know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And I suppose that is the argument against this proposal that, you know, this is a lifeline to a lot of people and they enjoy it coming around. Why can't you provide even just one bus going around the county? Quite. And on my diary next week, Ollie, this... Uh, Discussion on the future of three prime waterfront sites in Torbay. They'll be on the table when Torbay Council's cabinet gets together on Tuesday evening. There's an old toilet block on Torquay's Corbin Head that could be turned into a new beach bar and another unlovely block of public conveniences at Preston Sands, which could become something really very nice indeed. Then there's the historic old toll house on Torquay Seafront, which was earmarked to become the latest outlet for an award-winning cafe business. But now the new council thinks it might be a good idea to sell them off to make a bit of much needed cash. And there's more to this than meets the eye. I hear that the proposal to sell them off has come as a bit of a surprise to some of the people who had been in the running to take them on and thought they still were. This could be a very interesting evening. Mm, interesting. And there does seem to be a bit of a thing about turning toilet blocks into cafes and restaurants at the moment isn't there they do and these are very sensitive sites especially corbin head i mean there's a memorial up on corbin head a wartime memorial there was a terrible tragedy during wartime up on corbin head when uh, a gun emplacement exploded uh, it's a very sensitive site corbin head they'd have to do something with it preston may be slightly less so i mean the toilet block at preston is not 
very nice to look at. And uh, I happen to know that the people who were interested in taking it on had some really nice ideas for it. The toll house is another thing. You would have driven past the toll house a dozen times and never noticed it's there, but it's a really important little building. It's in the corner by where the Palm Court Hotel used to be, where the uh, the spiral bridge is, and uh, oh, yes. it's interesting. Oh. It's, uh, it's a nice little building. It used to be public toilets as well. There's a recurring theme here, <laughs> but that could be uh, quite a nice business. Mm, we will have to see what happens about meeting next week. I'm sure you'll fill us in, Guy. Thank you again for your company this week. Thanks, Ollie. Yeah, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the feedback uh, that we had after last week's podcast. It's always nice to hear from people who've listened in. Uh, let us know what you want us to talk about. And, uh, you know, we were after opinions earlier on the uh, the great legalising cannabis debate, which is a big subject for us to be taking on, but we'd be interested to hear what you think. Very much so. And that email address you need is news at radiox.co.uk. Do let us know your your thoughts. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon for another episode of Devoncast. Catch the latest episode of Devoncast every Friday at radiox.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts.